0: It was a hot and still night on the small Mediterranean island of Malta on the evening of June twenty-third, 1565. A Christian sentry patrolling at the foot of a fort on the Grand Harbor had spotted something drifting in the water and raised the alarm. For days, this sentry had seen the fires of the battle raging only a thousand yards across the water at Fort St. Elmo, and he could smell the stink of death coming across the water. The sounds of battle had died out, meaning the tiny garrison at St. Elmo had been overrun, but the fires still lit the sky. Death was surely headed their way now. The alarm was raised. More of these strange objects drifted into view, and now men waded into the shallows to drag them to the shore. What they found horrified even these battle-scarred veterans, the headless bodies of their Christian comrades who had died defending Fort St. Elmo. Their bodies were crucified on wooden crosses, which had been pushed out by the enemy to float in the harbor. The intent of this terrible act was obvious. To demoralize and terrify the Christian warriors. The Turks and the Christians had been at war for years in and around the Mediterranean Sea, with the Turks having destroyed half the Christian fleet at Jirba, and having razed Malta and surrounding islands already in the past ten years. But Malta wasn't to be given up lightly and new forts and embattlements were built to withstand any new attacks from the Turkish armies. But these new forts were now falling under the onslaught of 40,000 crazed Turks and their conscripts, thirsty for revenge. And now the target was the one remaining fort on the harbor front where the beleaguered, outnumbered, and overwhelmed Christians were still holding out, the Fort St. Angelo. The Turkish commander wished its defenders to know that they would be next, "'that a horrible death was the only outcome of continued resistance. "'But the commander hadn't counted on the mettle of his enemy, "'the Knights of St. John, "'nor on the determination of their leader, Grand Master John Parisot de la Valette, "'who vowed that the fort would not be taken "'while one last Christian lived in Malta. "'Vallette was 71, a seasoned warrior "'who had come up through the ranks from the age of 18 "'as a galley slave, and he had seen countless battles He hated the enemy with a passion, and Ballet lived for war. It was in his blood. The Knights of St. John had been on the forefront of resisting the spread of the Ottoman Empire and Islam throughout all the Mediterranean and in Europe for centuries. They were considered zealots now, holdouts in a world that had slowly but surely given in to centuries of Islamic encroachment. After all, the Crusades were over, and there was room enough in the world for everyone— Yes, the tactics of the champions for Islam were brutal, but weren't the retaliatory methods employed by the Christian knights of St. John in defense of their religion just as horrific? These knights were an anachronism in a world that was experiencing a renaissance. They were a throwback to the Middle Ages. It was time to see the light of reason, to accept all faiths. That was the thinking in the high courts of Europe. On news of the grotesque discovery of the headless knights many of them his personal friends. Grandmaster Valet quickly ordered that captured Turks, now being held in the vaulted dungeons of the fort, be taken from their cells and beheaded one by one. Then he returned a message of his own. The heads of his Turkish captives were fired from his most powerful cannon direct into the Muslim lines. There would be no negotiation, no compromise, no surrender, no retreat, no turning the other cheek. We Christians, the Grand Master was saying, will fight to the death and take you with us. The siege of Malta in 1565 was a clash of unimaginable brutality, one of the bloodiest yet most overlooked battles ever fought. It was also an event that determined the course of history, for at stake was the very survival of Christianity. Here was the situation in that part of the world in 1565. The Ottoman Turkish Empire had conquered the entire Middle East, sacking the greatest city in the world at that time, Constantinople, now renamed Istanbul, massacring the Christian population. In 1526, the Turks had unsuccessfully besieged Vienna, in the very heart of Europe. Muslim slave raiders were depopulating whole villages, attacking coastal towns of Italy France, Spain, Portugal, England, Wales, and Ireland, and even seizing white slaves from as far away as Iceland. Ultimately, over 1.1 million Christian Europeans were kidnapped and enslaved by Muslim pirates between 1500 and 1800. Entire divisions of them were converted by threat of death and turned into a crack attack corps called the Janissaries. They were all young men, all former Christians, all brainwashed, and taught the tactics of murder and terror in the name of Allah. If vitally strategic Malta fell, the Muslim Ottoman Empire would soon dominate the Mediterranean. What was left of the Roman Empire since the fall of Constantinople to the Muslims, not too many years ago, was Rome itself. And now Rome would be in peril, mainly thanks to a clergy that had been weakened by scandal, and Rome, now a city nation of immigrants who cared nothing for Roman traditions, Lacked the will and the manpower to fight. Rome was indeed ripe for the taking, and Rome's army had been weakening rapidly, leading to a sack of Rome in 1527 by Protestants who took advantage of a large chunk of the mercenary Roman army that mutinied after not receiving their war pay, and then returned to sack the city and revel in its brutal destruction. Rome's Age of Renaissance was coming to an end. At Malta, the Muslims had hundreds of ships and an army tens of thousands strong. The Christians were a ragtag bunch of just a few hundred hard-bitten knights and some local peasant soldiers with a few thousand Spanish infantry. Malta looked doomed. That the Hospitaller Knights of St. John existed at all was a minor miracle. They were a medieval relic an order established originally to look after ailing pilgrims to the Holy Lands during the Crusades 300 years earlier. Other orders of the Crusades, such as the Knights Templar, the subject of one of our popular archived episodes titled The Knights Templar, Crusaders or Conspirators at 1001 Heroes, had been extinct now for two and a half centuries. They came from countries all over Europe, Germany, Portugal, France, Spain, All that united them was a burning desire to defend Christendom against what they perceived as the ever-encroaching tide of Islam. Yet by the 16th century, an age of the increasing power of nation-states, these transnational zealots were viewed as an embarrassing anachronism by much of Europe. Malta and the Knights of St. John represented a strategic thorn in the side of the Ottomans the Knights of St. John had proven to be the most tenacious enemies of the Islamic Jihad. They were the last knights to leave the Holy Land. From the island of Rhodes, they had raided Islamic shipping, setting many Christian captives free from Islamic slavery. After enduring severe sieges of Rhodes, their position in the eastern Mediterranean became indefensible, and they sailed away, surrendering the island of Rhodes to the Muslims. The Turkish Armada which had set sail from Constantinople on the 22nd of March, was by all accounts one of the largest assembled since antiquity. According to one of the earliest and most complete histories of the seas, that of the order's official historian, Giacomo Basio, the Saracen fleet consisted of 193 vessels, which included 131 galleys, seven galleots, smaller galleys, and four galleasses, large galleys the remainder being transport vessels and others. Contemporary letters from Don Garcia, the viceroy of Sicily, give similar numbers. The Turkish force was estimated at 40,000 men. The defenders had 4,000. The odds were 10 to 1. Already the Turks had forced them from their earlier home, the island of Rhodes. Now the knights had moved to Malta and were threatened once more. In centuries past, this order of knights was known as the Hospitallers. The Hospitallers most likely arose as a group of individuals associated with an Amalfatan hospital in the Muristan district of Jerusalem, dedicated to John the Baptist and founded around 1023 by Gerard Tom to provide care for the sick, poor, or injured pilgrims coming to the Holy Land. Through centuries of fighting, which included the Crusades, the Hospitallers largely became known as the Knights of St. John, who became known for compassion for others, their bravery in combat, and their willingness to lay down their lives for their comrades. Their motto in peace was, For the holy sick, our blessed Lord and for all, who continue the spiritual tradition of the order of St. John at present, in living deeds serving under the Maltese Cross. The need for an identifiable emblem for the knights had become crucial during combat to protect and recapture Holy Land. Because of the extensive armor which covered their entire bodies and faces, the knights were unable to distinguish friend from foe in battle. They chose the cross of cavalry as their symbol since they fought their battles for a holy cause. Later they assisted the knights of the Crusades, the knights Templar, through their goodwill, and also through military assistance, in an effort to win back the Holy Land against the Muslims, which, in the 12th century and beyond, were commonly called Saracens. The terms Arab, Islam, and Muslim were not in common use at that time. The Saracens and the many Islamic tribes that they were comprised of were all a part of the Ottoman Empire, which was centered in Turkey and occupied much of Central Asia, the Middle East, and North Africa. They were a warlike nation, driven by a theology that allowed no other faith, ordering the death of all infidels, defined as anyone who did not believe in Islam. Cities and empires ranging from Rome to Jerusalem fell to the sword of Islam and responded in turn throughout much of the years from around 800 A.D. to 1600 A.D. As the Knights of St. John defended against and attacked the Saracens, they encountered a new weapon unknown to European warriors, It was a simple but a horrible device of war. It wrought excruciating pain and agonizing death upon the fighters for the cross. The Saracens' weapon was fire, Greek fire to be specific. It was a gelatinous, flammable liquid composed mostly of naphtha, sulfur, and quicklime. The Saracens had learned about it the hard way 300 years before at the hands of the Byzantines. Constantine the Fourth had used it against the Saracens in A.D. 673, and again in A.D. 718. The Crusaders had known of it, though not how to make it. The Saracens were particularly adept at delivering it. They used intricate and complicated engines of war, the exact designs of which, like the formula for Greek fire itself, have been lost. On castle walls and the prows of ships, bronze tubes were employed that emitted jets of liquid fire, to much the same effect as today's flamethrowers. Glass bombs were filled with Greek fire and used much the same as today's Molotov cocktail. Special arrows and spears were used, these being many times more effective when using other flammable materials. When the Knights of St. John became saturated with the highly flammable liquid, the Saracens hurled a flaming torch into their midst. Hundreds of the Knights were burned alive, Others risked their lives to save their brothers-in-arms from dying a painful and fiery death. Many knights carrying water-soaked cloaks were called to perform heroic deeds by rescuing fellow knights and extinguishing fires by throwing their cloaks over their burning bodies. This provides the historical link between the Maltese Cross, the Knights of St. John, and today's fire departments, a link that goes back to the 16th century. Hi, everyone. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. In the years leading up to 1565, on Malta, the Knights of St. John strengthened Fort St. Angelo at the tip of Birgu, as well as constructing two new forts, Fort St. Michael at Sanglia and Fort St. Elmo on Mount Sibaris. All three of these forts proved crucial during the Great Siege of 1565. The Grand Master of the Order of Saint John, Jean de Valette, began vigorous preparations to enable Malta to survive an extended siege. As his espionage network informed him of the imminent invasion, de la Valette set about accumulating stores, ammunition, strengthening fortifications, recruiting further fighting men, and recalling all knights to Malta. In May of 1565, Suleiman now in charge of an invasion force of about 40,000 men, made his plans to besiege the 700 knights and 8,000 soldiers on Malta and expel them and gain a new base from which to possibly launch another assault on Europe. The official historian of the order, Giacomo Basio, recorded that the Turkish fleet consisted of 193 vessels, including 131 galleys, 7 galleots, 11 large merchant ships, one of which alone held 600 armed men, 6,000 barrels of gunpowder, and 1,300 rounds of cannonball. The man leading this huge army to the shores of Malta in 1565 was known as Suleiman the Magnificent, Sultan of Turkey and pitiless ruler of the Ottoman Empire. Known as the most powerful figure on the planet, his titles included Vice-Regent of God on Earth, Lord of the Lords of East and West, and possessor of men's necks on account of his habit of beheading servants who displeased him. His realm stretched from the gates of Vienna to the gardens of Babylon, from Budapest to Aden. He was one of the richest men of all time, who never wore the same clothes twice, ate off solid gold plates encrusted with jewels, and took his pleasure in a harem of more than 300 women. An octogenarian, he was utterly ruthless— Employing an assassination squad of deaf-mutes to strangle traitors, the reasoning was that they could never be influenced by the pleas for mercy of their victims, nor tell any tales. He was a megalomaniac who idolized Alexander the Great, and a ruthless killer, killing the three people closest to him. First, his loyal and devoted Grand Vizier, Ibrahim who he eventually had strangled because of the suspiciousness and intrigues of the other most important person in Suleiman's life, his wife, Roxalana. Then he had his two most able sons strangled, Mustafa and Bayezid, as to have his youngest, worthless son, Salim, the favorite son of Roxalana, succeed him as sultan. Then there were the millions of Christians to whom he delivered fire and death as his armies raided and confiscated Europe, Central Asia, and all the lands surrounding the Mediterranean. Yet by the standards of the day and his own dynastic line, he was not especially violent. Other sultans had done worse. One, tiring of his womenfolk, had drowned his entire harem, some several hundred strong, in muslin sacks at the bottom of the Bosphorus. A second had written into the royal prerogative that he could shoot ten or more citizens a day with his bow and arrows from the roof of his palace. Such was the brutality that led the forces of Islam. Suleiman controlled the greatest fighting force in the world. Before him lay an armada of 200 ships ready to sail, an army of 40,000 troops on board. He planned to wipe the barren rock of Malta and the Knights of St. John off the map. These knights on Malta lived by raiding and disrupting his Ottoman shipping routes. The last straw had been their capture of the prized ship of his powerful courtier, the chief black eunuch. He was nicknamed the black eunuch by Suleiman because all his parts had been cut off by a clean sweep of a razor. A metal tube had been inserted into his urethra and the wound cauterized in boiling oil. The eunuch was also entrusted to look after Suleiman's harem. The sultan didn't expect undue trouble exacting his revenge. A mere 700 knights stood in his way. Such a rabble would be quickly cleared." The Turkish fleet headed across the Mediterranean in March of 1565. Aboard the ships were the elite Janissary Shock Troops, the Invincible Ones, who had carried Islam across Europe with the slashing blades of their scimitars. Accompanying them were the black-plumed cavalry corps and the infantry, as well as the hashish-crazed Laolars, who wore the skins of wild beasts and whose only goal in life was to reach paradise through death as they slit infidel Christian throats in battle. In late May of 1565, the invasion force arrived at the island. The knights awaiting them enjoyed good intelligence of their plans and had asked for assistance from the Christian armies of European nations. Every kingdom spurned their request, other than Sicily, which said that if the knights held out, help would eventually come. vallet challenged his knights. It is the great battle of the cross, and the Quran, which is now to be fought, a formidable army of infidels are on the point of invading our island. We, for our part, are the chosen soldiers of the cross, and if heaven requires the sacrifice of our lives, there can be no better occasion than this. Let us hasten then, my brothers, to the sacred altar. There we will renew our vows and retain by our faith in the sacred sacraments that contempt for death which alone can render us invincible. You've probably never heard of Fort Saint Elmo. It's a small, star-shaped structure sited at the top of what is now the Maltese capital of Valletta, on the north shore of Grand Harbour. The attackers' first target was this small fort of Saint Elmo, which dominated the entrance to the Grand Harbour. A mere one hundred knights and five hundred soldiers held Fort Saint Elmo. The remaining knights being apportioned out between the other two forts. De La Vallette had ordered them to fight to the last man, knowing that the length of their survival would determine the outcome of the whole campaign. The Turks had estimated that they would need just three days to bombard St. Elmo into submission. Yet, the garrison of St. Elmo held on to an incredible 35 days of constant bombardment and waves of assault. All of Europe prayed fervently, realizing what was at stake. As Queen Elizabeth of England declared, If the Turks should prevail against the Isle of Malta, it is uncertain what further peril might follow to the rest of Christendom. Mustafa Pasha ordered the huge siege guns to be dragged to Mount Seberis, Two 60-pound culberins, 10 80-pounders, and an enormous basilisk firing a solid 160-pound shot were brought for the attack on St. Elmo. After a week of preparation and bombardment by such heavy artillery, the sandstone and lime blocks composing the fort of St. Elmo had begun to crumble as the Turks relentlessly pounded away at the small fort. A dust cloud formed above the island. After the first night of bombardment, the besieged knights made a sortie, stealthily lowering their drawbridge and captured the closest enemy trench. Mustafa commanded, Janissaries forward! As the Janissaries stormed the trenches, they were cut down by the hundreds by the cannon of St. Elmo. But the attackers were given a new reason to fight with the arrival of Dragut, known amongst his men as the Drawn Sword of Islam and the Scourge of the Christians. He brought another 1,500 of his elite warriors and poured them into the fight, a screaming mass of hashish-crazed, scimitar-wielding killers wearing animal skins and appearing almost eager to impale themselves on the lances of the defenders in order to earn their pathway to heaven. As Dragoot directed the onslaught, he noticed an important detail that his commander Mustafa had missed The strength of St. Elmo was the resupplies they received each night from one of the other forts, St. Angelo. As the artillery bombardment of St. Elmo doubled in intensity, their defenders tried to erect counter walls behind the crumbling outer walls. St. Angelo needed to be destroyed as soon as possible. At this time, word reached De La Valette that the relief hoped for from nearby Sicily had been seriously delayed. Valette read the dispatch to his counsel and declared, We now know that we cannot look to others for our deliverance. It is only upon God and our own swords that we must rely. Yet there is no reason to be disheartened, rather the opposite. For it is better to know the truth of one's situation than be deceived by false hopes. Our faith and the honor of our order are in our own hands. We shall not fail. According to James Jackson, author of Blood Rock, in an article for the UK Daily Mail in 2007, titled, History's Bloodiest Seas Used Human Heads as Cannonballs. After the artillery, the attacks went in, wave upon wave of screaming and scimitar-wielding Turks, trampling over the bodies of their own slain, laying down ship's masts to bridge the debris-filled moat into which the walls of St. Elmo had slid. Each time they were met by the ragged and diminishing band of defenders fighting with pikes and battle-axes, firing muskets and dropping blocks of stone, throwing fire hoops that set ablaze the flowing robes of the Muslims and sent them burning and plummeting to their deaths. Those fire hoops, covered in flax and cotton, dipped in brandy and coated with pitch and saltpeter, were the knights' own invention. Dropped blazing over the bastion walls, they could engulf three Turks at a time. For 30 days, cut off and doomed, the soldiers of St. Elmo prevailed. The Turkish general had expected the fort to fall within three days. Late at night on Friday, June 22, 1565, the few hundred survivors from an original garrison of 1,500 sang hymns, offered up prayers, defiantly tolled their chapel bell, and prepared to meet their end the next day. Those unable to stand were placed in chairs behind the shattered ramparts, crouching low with their pikes and swords to await the final assault. When it came, and the entire Turkish army descended as a howling mass, the handful of Christians still managed to fight for several hours. Eventually, the Ottomans took their prize. The crescent banners of the Grand Turk flew above the ruins. The heads of the knights were raised on spikes, and the crucified bodies of their officers were floated across to Fort St. Angelo on the far side of the harbor. The Turks had lost time, and up to 8,000 of their cracked troops. Summer heat was rising, disease and dysentery spread throughout the Muslim camp, and the dead lay piled around the blackened remnants of the seized fort. The knights had been deserted. The princes of Europe had abandoned them. But Grandmaster Vallette was not about to quit. Scenes of heroism and horror abounded in the terrible days that followed. There were extraordinary characters, Fra Roberto, the priest who fought on the battlements with a sword in one hand and a cross in the other, the two English gentlemen adventurers who arrived belatedly from Rome to take part in the action, Vallette himself, who stood unyielding in the breach and used a spear to battle hand to hand against the foe while his leg was on fire. Others had led desperate sallies against the Ottoman, harrying their labour corps, sniping at commanders, spiking their guns. But the enemy too had their brave and vivid figures. Among them was Dragut, the most feared corsair of his day, whose skill and dash had served the Sultan well. A cannonball splinter ended his life on June 23rd, a huge loss for the Turks that helped to weaken the will of the Ottoman forces. The siege continued, the target now St. Angelo, the final and fortified enclave of the knights on the southern side of the Grand Harbor. As told in the beginning of our story, Mustafa Pasha ordered the bodies of the knights that had defended St. Elmo to be decapitated. Their heads were placed on stakes, and their corpses were nailed to crosses to be floated across the harbor. As the headless bodies of crucified knights washed up at the base of Fort St. Angelo, Lavalette ordered their Turkish prisoners to be executed, and their heads to be used as cannonballs to bombard the Turks. The message was very clear. The knights would fight to the very death. No quarter would be given LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. The morale of the defenders of Malta was lifted momentarily when four galleys from Sicily managed to evade the Turkish blockade and land a small relief force of 42 knights and 700 militia. At the same time, Muslim siege guns were transported to the heights of Corradino to begin the bombardment of Fort St. Angelo and St. Michael and the villages of Burgu and Sanglia. 70 cannon from Mount Skibaris, Gallows Point, Tigna Point, and Mount Salvatore, and from the heights of Corradino, opened up a heavy crossfire on St. Angelo and St. Michael and on the villages of Burgu and Sanglia, the Maltese villages that the three forts were protecting. On the morning of the 15th of July, Mustafa ordered the first major assault from both land and sea. The Algerian troops stormed the walls of St. Michael from the leeward side, while the Turks landed troops to storm the seaward walls. The Algerians came on with a wild, screaming rush. The Christians counter-attacked and turned the tide of the battle. As the Muslim invaders fled, Mustafa sent in his master Stroke, 1,000 of his elite Janissaries aboard 10 large boats to land at the northern wall while the Christian defenders were preoccupied defending the southern wall at St. Angelo. What Mustafa did not know was that Vallette had positioned a battery of artillery at the base of St. Angelo to counter just such an eventuality. Chevalier de Guerral, who commanded this five-gun battery, could scarcely believe his eyes as he saw the Janissaries sailing right toward the muzzles of his guns. At the ideal target range, he ordered his men to open fire. Nine of the ten boats were sunk and 800 Janissaries disappeared into the water. Only the tenth boat managed to survive and flee back across the harbor. The few Janissaries who managed to make it to land received St. Elmo's pay, meaning no mercy. The Knights opened their gates and charged the Muslims, sending them fleeing. Following the humiliation of the 15th of July, Mustafa adopted a more cautious approach depending upon his artillery to reduce the walls and undermine the morale of the defenders by incessant bombardment. From north and from south, from east and west, the Christian fortresses came under withering and sustained artillery barrage. The Turks gave the besieged no respite. The bombardment continued all day and night throughout the last week of July. At dawn on the 2nd of August, the Turks advanced while all their cannon thundered at once. People in Sicily, over a hundred kilometers away, could hear the cannon fire. It was the heaviest bombardment of the siege and it seemed impossible that any man could live to the sustained fire, let alone be in any state to fight in the crumbling ruins of the forts. From every ridge and slope, Muslims swarmed forward like a tidal wave against the garrisons. Yet attack after attack was repulsed and Mustafa was once again forced to concede defeat. As his exhausted and decimated assault troops withdrew, Mustafa decided to subject the Christians to a further five days continuous bombardment before attempting the next assault. In all, over 130,000 cannonballs were fired from the Turkish guns against the Christian defenders on Malta. Throughout the siege, men, women and children worked alongside the soldiers to rebuild the walls, no doubt adding the enemy's cannonballs to the walls repairing the defenses, and preparing bombs and ammunition. On the 7th of August, the Islamic assault was renewed. Like a tsunami, the enemy rushed upon Bergu and Sanglià simultaneously. Yet, as they swept over the ditch half-filled with rubble from the walls and through the breaches of walls blasted by continuous cannon fire, they were confronted by another interior wall. The troops who had poured in through the outer breaches now came back under a withering fire from the garrison. Unable to turn back because of the weight of their numbers pressing behind them, they were trapped in a narrow killing ground where they were slaughtered in the hundreds. Then the Christian defenders leapt from their entrenchments and stormed the faltering attackers. The Muslims turned and fled slipping and sliding over the blood of their comrades and tripping over the mounds of dead bodies as they fled from the fight. Yet, while the Turkish attack on St. Angelo was routed, their assault on St. Michael was succeeding. Turkish flags began to appear along the ramparts. It was at this point that the governor of Medina, the capital of Malta, launched his cavalry force against the lightly guarded Turkish headquarters. The Christians overwhelmed the sentries, killing every man that they could find, capturing or destroying a huge store of provisions and ammunition. As a messenger galloped up to Mustafa to inform him that a large Christian force had swarmed over their camp, Mustafa feared the worst. He assumed that this was the relief force from Sicily. Mustafa ordered a general retreat. In this way, Fort St. Michael was saved. However, there was no relief force. Vallette called his council together that night and informed his men, I will tell you now openly, my brethren, that there is no hope to be looked for, except in the succor of Almighty God, the only true help. He who has looked after us until now will not forsake us, nor will he deliver us into the hands of the enemies of the holy faith. We are soldiers, and we shall die fighting. If by any evil chance the enemy should prevail, we can expect no better treatment than our brethren who were in St. Elmo." let no man think that there can be any question of receiving honorable treatment or escaping with his life. If we are beaten, we shall all be killed. It would be better to die in battle than terribly and ignominiously at the hands of the Muslims. The Muslims began to tunnel under the defenses to plant mines. With a tremendous explosion, the bastion of Castile and Sanglia collapsed. As the survivors staggered back in confusion, waves of Turks swarmed to the breach, Vallette seized a pike and boldly ran from his command post towards the breach. Seeing the Grand Master running to the point of danger, all the Knights and soldiers joined him in turning back the tide of Islamic advance. A grenade exploded near Vallette and Knights rushed to defend him. Withdraw sire now to a place of safety! But Vallette refused. The enemy is already in retreat. Vallette continued to advance against the enemy declaring As long as their banners still wave in the wind, I will not withdraw. The knights and soldiers surged forward with incredible tenacity until, within a few minutes, the Turks were routed and fleeing in disarray. There was no darkness that night as gunfire lit up the sky and cannon pounded the walls. Yet the Christians stood firm, and by dawn the Turks withdrew in defeat. Now Mustafa unleashed his siege tower, which was higher than the walls, Janissaries used its platform to fire upon the defenders of Bergu. Ballette had his workmen burrow a hole in the base of the wall facing the tower. They wheeled out a large cannon which fired two large cannonballs fastened together by a chain. The chain shot sliced through the structure causing it to collapse, spilling Turks, incendiary grenades and fuel which set the giant tower ablaze. On the 20th of August, the Turks brought up another, larger siege engine, reinforced at the base with earth and stonework. The Knights of St. John stormed the tower in a surprise sortie and swept up the laddered floors, eliminating the Janissaries in a matter of minutes. They then turned this siege engine into an additional fighting platform to defend their walls. The two Turkish cannon on it poured fire into the dismayed Muslims. At this point, Mustafa learned that a large supply ship from North Africa to replenish their dwindling supplies of ammunition and food had been captured by a Christian galley. Despondency swept the Turkish camp. They were now running so short of gunpowder that they had to suspend the bombardment. Thousands of Turks were laid low with sickness. Even water and food was in short supply for the attackers. Anticipating the Turkish intentions, the governor of Medina dressed the civilians in soldiers' uniforms and had them patrol the ramparts along with the garrison. All available cannon were brought to the side to which the Turkish assault would approach. As the Muslims toiled up the long slopes to the city, they were shocked to see the walls bristling with cannon and armed men. As they came within range, the cannon opened fire. The dismayed Turks halted and turned back. It's another impregnable position, another St. Elmo, they cried. The Turks launched another attack on St. Angelo and St. Michael on the 1st of September, but their men were, by now, so drained and disheartened, reduced in numbers and enfeebled by fever and dysentery, that the attack failed almost before it had begun. It is not the will of Allah that we shall become masters of Malta, was the general consensus. On the 5th of September, Viceroy Don Garcia set sail from Sicily with a relief force made up of professional soldiers from all over Europe, including many Italians, Germans, French, and other European volunteers. The relief consisted of 10,000 fighting men and 28 ships. When news of this relief arrived on the 8th of September, Mustafa's army was on the verge of mutiny. The Turkish fleet had lost the will to fight and did not even attempt to contest the landing. As the invaders began to embark, Mustafa learned that the relief force was actually smaller than his army, so he ordered his men back ashore. The relief force charged the Muslims and in a fierce battle slaughtered 3,000 of Mustafa's army, driving the remainder into the sea. Ballet rushed light cannon up to St. Elmo and fired upon the retreating fleet. The day the Muslims fled Malta was the 11th of September. Victory at last! The bells of the churches rang out over the shattered houses of Burgu, and the victors sang Te Deum to the God who grants victories. Nearly 250 knights of the Order of St. John had lost their lives in the great siege. The survivors were all wounded, many crippled for life. Of the original 9,000 garrison, barely 600 were still capable of fighting. The Turks had lost over 30,000 men. The Sultan Suleiman was devastated when he heard of this defeat. Next year, I myself, the Sultan Suleiman, will lead an expedition against this accursed island. I will not spare one single inhabitant, he bragged. The following year, before he could carry out this threat, Suleiman died at the age of 72. At the beginning of his reign, he had been defeated before the walls of Vienna, 1529. Now at the end of his reign... His army had suffered the most humiliating and decisive defeat at Malta. The Ottoman Turks never attempted to besiege Malta again. The failure of the siege denied Turkish forces control of the western Mediterranean and prevented their plans to conquer southern Europe. The Great Siege of Malta was one of the most decisive victories in military history, changing the course of history and preventing the western expansion of Turkish power. All Europe rejoiced in celebrating the victory, and in Malta, the church bells rang out triumphantly. Honors were showered upon the Grand Master La Valette by all the kingdoms of Europe, and at last the Knights of St. John received the generous financial contributions that they needed to rebuild the ruined cities and fortresses of Malta. Italian engineer Francesco Zapparelli helped plan a magnificent citadel to be called Valette, named after the hero of the siege of Malta. Valette is built on Mount Sciberras including the site of Fort St. Elmo. The Cathedral of St. John in Vallette was described by Sir Walter Scott as the most magnificent church in all of Europe. When he died, La Vallette was buried in a great crypt in the Cathedral of St. John where the inscription reads, Here lies La Vallette, the scourge of Africa and Asia, the shield of Europe, whence he expelled the barbarians by his holy arms. The heroic defense of Malta against such overwhelming odds for over four months of relentless bombardment and assault inspired all of Europe to renew its efforts to defeat the Muslim menace. In 1571, the Turkish fleet was decisively annihilated at the Battle of Lepanto. This last great Turkish threat to the heart of Europe was defeated at the gates of Vienna on the 11th of September, 1683. History has moved on. The island withstood another siege which played a key role in the saving of civilization in the 1940s, this time against Hitler's forces. Today, the hotel and apartment developers have moved in. Rarely is the 1565 Great Siege of Malta even mentioned. Hardly ever do visitors to the island dwell on such an ancient and forgotten incident. But to stand in that tiny chapel, recessed in the walls of Fort St. Elmo, the very place where defenders took their last holy sacrament, on a June night so many years ago. One realizes that we owe those knights. Their sacrifice was immense, their effect on our lives more profound than we may know. Yet religious fanaticism continues, and global powers will still fight over a piece of barren rock. Perhaps we never really learn, writes James Jackson, author of Blood Rock, published by John Murray. Today, 450 years after Bloody Malta, religious extremism, terror tactics, and barbarism still exist. The spread of Islam is as strong as ever throughout the world, with a number of terrorist groups like ISIS still using barbaric tactics to spread fear, kill the Christian infidels by the sword, and gain converts, while other more peaceful means are used to access high political places and governments to achieve the same goal, the spread of Islam. You don't see quite as many Maltese crosses on fire and emergency vehicles these days, and we can only guess as to why. We do know that the use of the Maltese Cross to mark helipads for emergency helicopters was outlawed by the U.S. government in the late 1970s because they were judged to be anti-Semitic. As previously mentioned, Malta was once again placed under siege in 1940 in World War II, this time having to stand up to all the bombs Hitler could throw at it from the air over a period of months in an attempt to destroy all the ships in its harbors and killed the entire population, in retaliation for their supporting their English allies and remaining a thorn in the Nazi plan to dominate Europe throughout all of that war. Many of the buildings were reduced to fiery rubble, thousands died, but Malta still stands. Today the Maltese Cross is known around the world mainly as a symbol of the fire service. It is often seen painted on fire trucks, on the clothing of firefighters, depicted on firefighters' badges. And quite often seen on emergency vehicles. The Maltese cross is a symbol of protection and a badge of honor. It was first created as a coin by Vallette, the heroic knight of the Order of St. John, within years after the defeat of the Ottomans on the island of Malta in 1565. The eight points on the cross denote the eight obligations of the knights namely, to live in truth, to have faith, to repent one's sins, to give proof of humility to love justice, to be merciful, to be sincere and wholehearted, and to endure persecution. Thank you so much for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Our show gurus tell us that you're an adventurous crowd, highly educated in both schools, the literary ones and the School of Hard Knocks, and you know your history. To that end, we offer you a toast. And a huge thanks for joining us each week and sharing with your friends, which is critical to our success. When you share, we grow. When you support our advertisers, we grow. And when we grow, we do more shows. You can catch all our archives at www.1001storiespodcast.com and we invite you to chime in at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.